This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Wednesday morning show for you. If you use the Massey Tunnel in your daily commute, or even if you just drive through that tunnel occasionally, you know what a bad traffic bottleneck that thing is. Today is the day we expect to get an answer here on what will replace the chronically congested Massey Tunnel. Will it be a new bridge over the Fraser River. Remember how the previous liberal government started building that bridge? It was going to be the biggest bridge ever built in British Columbia. The NDP slammed the brakes on it to do a, a four-year-long rethink. Well, now we get the answer. Will it be that bridge plan A, or, or will it be a new tunnel under the river? 11.30 a.m. this morning is that announcement. Four-year-long wait for this news. We're going to bring you that live on the show today lots more on the show today too including the continuing political firefight over premier john horgan's vacay horgan feeling the heat here for taking a long vacation here despite the wildfire emergency he is out of the province on vacation he was spotted in peggy's cove nova scotia some photos on posted on social media this guy is, you talk about keeping a low profile. This guy has not been seen for a public appearance since July 21st. It's like exactly four weeks ago today. This is a day 28. We have not seen a public appearance or comment by the premier. So he's taken the heat. I got Kevin Falcon on the show today running for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party. He's the odds-on favorite to uh, become the next Liberal leader. He wrote a letter to Horgan telling him to get his butt back to BC. So we'll talk to him later on this morning. All that, lots more, lots of time for your calls on the open line. First, though, we start with the continuing battle over the trans- mountain pipeline and you may have heard about some of the protests that have been going on to stop the construction of the pipeline including protesters who have taken to the treetops in order to stop it protesters occupying trees in the path of the pipeline construction it started just over a year ago dr tim takaro he first went up into the tree on august 3rd 2020 over a year ago that's a long time to be in a tree. Tim Takaro on the line. Hi. Hi, how are you doing, Mike? You're not in the tree right now, though, right? <laughs> or are no, you? that's right. I, we, have, um, we have a lot of sitters, um, and we're, we're in a lot of trees now in Burnaby. Um, so, no, it's not me all the time. So you guys have been like, take, doing this in shifts, right? That's right, yeah. How, what's the longest, how many days in a row, the longest you've been up in the tree? My first sit was my longest sit. That was uh, 10 days. Uh, that was the August 3rd you mentioned. <clears throat> um, but uh, Timothy Gobert uh, has uh, a new record. Um, I believe he went two and a half weeks uh, in December into January. So, um, yeah, he, he's, uh, he's number one. 
Okay, and these are trees that the pipeline construction crews, what they've targeted to be cut down for the pipeline construction. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. some of the um, last remaining uh, green areas um, in Burnaby, it's um, actually slated to be um, to be Burnaby Conservation Area adjoining uh, Brunette River. Um, <clears throat> but um, it's, it's Burlington Northern property uh, at the moment there. Um, holding it and uh, we're right on the pipeline route um, and so we, we plan to stay there and it's because of the climate emergency Mike um, right. it's obvious that uh, we are in a climate crisis we have people dying here in British Columbia because of climate change hundreds over um, the last month and um, this is got to stop we know what to do. Um, most of the world is um, turning off the fossil energy fix spigot. And uh, right now, um, Canada says they should turn it up before they turn it down. And um, that makes no sense to me as a scientist or, and a physician. Speaking of Dr. Tim Takaro, he's one of the leaders of the Stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project. He's been one of the occupiers of a tree, uh, in tree, multiple trees in the Pathline Project uh, p- pathway. When I speak to the Trans Mountain Company, Tim, they tell me, well, these guys are just kind of wasting their time because we're not really ready to cut those trees down yet. We're, we're going to be doing that later. So you're not really, you're not really delaying the project right now. But do you, do you think the protest has been effective? Well, I, all I know is that last year, um, Trans Mountain Corporation filed legal doc- documents. This is an affidavit by David Safari, an attorney for Trans Mountain, which, which said they had to cut trees at Holmes Creek um, between August 1st and September 15th last year, during wow. the least with risk window. And if they didn't do that, um, that... Uh, the project would be irrevocably delayed uh, because everything, you know, has okay. to go. Okay. And, Let me... Yeah, and, and now, you know, now we're two weeks through the, the, the next chance they had, and this is supposed to be the last chance before they're supposedly in service, and there's still no action there. So, okay. you know, okay. they Let me... talk Let a me lot check of it. this, and I hope you have somebody on the line who uh, can... Uh, explain trans mountains position well let me the, well let me check well on that point on that point tim let me check in with margareta dovgal researcher with resource works she supports the pipeline project margareta thanks for coming on again good morning mike okay what do you think of the uh the, the pipeline project and, the, and this protest well, i think the pipeline is necessary that's what uh has been found after several years of uh, study and uh, work by the proponent. Uh, Canadian government uh, believes it's so necessary, in fact, that they went ahead and they bought it to uh, insure it from the risk posed by obstructionist tactics. And uh, all I can really say to opponents, those who've been sitting in the trees, is, you know, well done. (laughs) It's uh, one year of economic obstructionism that has been accomplished. And I have no doubt that this delay has cost Canadians not only a more rapid economic recovery from COVID-19, but also our ability to turn this expansion project into a revenue generator quicker to feed money into federal and provincial coffers, money that we need to take the economy and the country to net zero emissions by 2050. And I I think it's clear that the proponent has been 
incredibly responsible here. They've paused construction, uh, you know, in compliance with species at risk legislation. And that, yeah. that's really key. But of course, construction is continuing all across the province and the project will get built. Okay, Tim, what do you say to th- say that? Uh, I wonder if she believes that climate change is real. Uh, this is a project that is contributing to expanding the Alberta tar sands when all the world knows we need to be shrinking the Alberta tar sands and getting into the future, which is now. We need an energy economy that does not rely on fossil fuels, and we should not be building large infrastructure that gets us deeper into debt and more death and more fires and more people um, d- damaged by climate change. Margareta. The unprecedented number of fires we've seen this year obviously are a sign that climate change is happening. I, I know that with certainty, but they, these facts don't make me forget that the real steps we need to take on climate um, are the ones that are ahead of us here, uh, or really what's at stake if we make the wrong decisions. And I know that the two most reliable tools we have against climate change are mitigation and adaptation. Both have major price tags. And if we want to avoid that collective sticker shock, we need fiscal firepower so we can invest, invest, invest in, in emissions yeah. reduction. Hey, Tim, yes, even if even we, if they did, go ahead, we Tim. have this uh, yeah. this financial firepower with the pandemic, we were able to turn on a dime for that emergency. And we, there's no vaccine for climate change. We need to devote all of our energies at the moment into the transition, not extending the damage that is being done by our emissions. Hey, Tim, even if they did not build this pipeline, wouldn't that oil be coming out of the ground in the Alberta oil sands anyway and maybe transported in a more dangerous fashion like by rail, which would have higher risk of a spill and more environmental damage? I mean, the oil is going to get pumped out of the ground either way, isn't it? No, it's not because it's no longer economically viable. That's the point. The economics of this project, as the Canadian Energy Regulator said itself in November, um, make no sense if we're serious about climate change. So this uh, pipeline is actually an economic liability for the country, and uh, that's been shown in several economic analyses. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, my guests are Dr. Tim Takero and Margareta Dovgal. Tim has been one of the protesters occupying some trees, uh, treetops in the path of the pa- uh, pipeline construction. Margareta supports the pipeline. Hey, Tim, I'm just, I'm real curious. When you're up in the tree there for day after day after day, like, how do you, um, like, does someone send food up there for you and a rope haul, or how does that work? Yeah. Um, I just first of all, Mike, I'd like to um, uh, just say that we prefer to call ourselves uh, land protectors. We are um, protecting the planet um, from um, the ravages of um, of climate change. And uh, so in terms of the supplies and all, we have a network of um, about uh, 80 to 90 people who um, support the treehouse by bringing food. Um, we haul it up um and um, uh, we're we're, we're uh, expanding the operation, um, and uh, we're uh, we're very well supplied for um, expanded operations. Let's go to the phone lines here. Frank on the line in Vancouver. Hey, Frank. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Uh, my comment is just I'm sick of these climate protesters constantly accusing people who support the pipeline of being climate deniers. 
that's just not true. What we are is, you know, we're looking to the future and for responsibility, and we don't want economic devastation. You know, I would remind people that natural resources is what helps cure all your kids of cancer. Natural resources is what helps keep a roof over your head. If you are not in support of uh, natural resources and this pipeline, then you're not in support of hospitals receiving machinery, uh, people being fed, roof over your head, everything like that. And in terms of the science, people like Tim manipulate the science. Scientists don't have total agreeance on okay, how okay. climate change is occurring. Thank you, Frank. What do you say to him, Tim? Well, this is a classic uh, sow doubt um, argument. We're going to sow doubt so that people can um, can begin to wonder if the uh, the international pe- intergovernmental panel on climate change in the United Nations are uh, packed with conspiracists to say that human causes climate change. This is a ridiculous argument, and uh, it's a false choice. We have a bright future here in Canada, and we can responsibly use the magnificent resources that we have, but we can't do it at the expense of a planet. There's no jobs on a dead planet. Let me go to Margareta. Margareta, your thoughts. Here's a key fact. 80% of all energy consumed on this planet today comes in the form of fossil fuels. And while that's still the case, we need to be realistic. Uh, There's actually really good news coming out of Alberta. Canadian innovation is shaping the way we're going to reconcile climate and our energy needs. All the major oil sands producers in Alberta today have committed to net zero by 2050. And that's a huge target, but it's not going to come cheap. It's going to be accomplished through billions of dollars in investment in new emissions reduction technologies. And that's all supported by the economic case for pipelines like this, including TMX. Tim, what do you say to that? I say um, it's great to have new technologies and move all of this along, but it makes absolutely no sense to expand uh, emissions while you're trying to do all these wonderful things that um, that Marguerite is referring to. Uh, the fact is that Canada has never met an emission target yet. So uh, this net zero by 2050, uh, great, but we need action today. And the quickest action would be for Justin Trudeau and, uh, and Jason Kenney to say, you know what, I, we agree with the International Energy Agency. We agree with the Canadian Energy Regulator. These pipelines are not needed, and we're going to stop building them because we want okay. to go the other direction. We want to move into the future, which is green energy, okay. and we are going to slowly reduce that 80% that Marguerite mentioned. We're going to keep reducing it, but we have to do it more quickly. And that's why this pipeline makes no sense in 2021. Okay, fit in one more call here. Ricky on the island. Ricky, go ahead. It's funny, little Timmy up in his tree there. Canada is the most carefully and strictly watched country in the world for what we do with extraction and things like that. So what does he think? They go, oh, I'm going to go shut down Canada, and it's little point three quarters of a percent of what we actually extract oil out of the ground. But we're going to shut that down so that it can go to India or Russia, someplace that's really, that really cares about the environment. So it's like, come on, Timmy, give your head a shake. Okay, Tim, okay Tim, Tim, what do you say about that? Again, um, this argument suggests that we're not in a climate emergency. All countries in the world will gather in November 
uh, in Glasgow, Scotland, for the 26th uh, Committee of the Parties. And at that meeting, nations will show what they have done, and Canada is a laggard when it comes to emissions reduction. Thank you, we Tim. Thank you, Tim. One percent. Thanks, Tim. I hate to step on you there, but we're just up against the clock. I, I'm grateful to you for your time today, though. Thanks a lot, Dr. Tim Takaro there. Uh, Margareta Dovgal, also on the line from Resource Works. Thanks a lot for all your calls. Follow me on the buzz line. Let me know what you think there. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the two Michaels now. Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor remain locked up in a Chinese jail, nearly 1,000 days in custody on dubious espionage charges. This is hostage diplomacy. China has all but admitted these two Canadians were detained in retaliation for Canada's arrest of a Chinese tech executive, Meng Wanzhou, on an American extradition warrant. Michael Spavor was sentenced by a Chinese court last week to 11 years in jail after he was convicted on espionage charges. If you're wondering what this is like for the two Michaels, what they're enduring in China right now, well, you should just ask someone who's been through it all before. Kevin Garrett, my next guest, and his wife, Julia, they were arrested and jailed in China back in 2014. Kevin ended up spending more than two years in jail. He was convicted on espionage charges after a one-day trial. Thank, thank goodness he was able to get home. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kevin, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks very much, Mike. Very glad to be here. I'm very I'm always very grateful to speak to you uh, about the experience that you went through. Uh, Kevin, before we talk about the two Michaels, I'm really interested in your thoughts. Let's talk a little bit for the listeners about what you and you and your wife, Julia, uh, went through. How long did you, you and your wife live in China before you were uh, arrested? Yeah, we lived in China for 30 years before we were arrested in 84 to 2014. And then, uh, of course, we were actually weren't arrested at first. We were abducted. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. The arrest came about eight months later. So it was a little bit of a, you know, uh, we think people think we're arrested. But no, there's a whole long process that goes through. You're not even into the judicial system before uh, you get arrested. You know, you're just, you're in limbo. You're in a black jail, basically. Yeah, that's a really important distinction. Um, mm-hmm. When you were in China, uh, I know you were doing, like, some people have re- described you as, like, Christian, you and your wife are, like, Christian missionaries, but you, you were doing more than just, like, Christian outreach work over there, weren't you? Or? No, no, yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't really describe us as that. We yeah. are Christians. We were doing work there. We were doing aid. We are helping everything from orphanage to children's homes to, you know, schools for the disabled and in North Korea, we we're doing things along those lines. And that's what we've done basically for 30 years. And right. we we're doing that uh, partly through a coffee shop that we started. And um, that was, you know, allows us to be there legally and do all these other things legally in China. Right. And did you did you and your wife ever have any trouble over there during 30 years? I mean, were you ever fearful or think like the government was spying on you or anything like that? Never really fearful, but always yeah. knowing that, yes, we're watched all the time. We just yeah. didn't always know how much. But early on, we had a, a friend who uh, worked with us, and she would tell us regularly, oh, yes, the secret police come and talk to me about you all the time. And they showed me the file on you, and it was very thick. But she says, wow. you know, I just let them take me for dinner. I, I enjoyed the dinners. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so so it, wasn't, it wasn't a surprise. We just knew how to operate, and you know, we weren't doing anything outside the law. We were doing everything within the law. 
So you weren't you weren't scared. I mean, it's a, it's a surveillance state, and I guess you knew that, but you were not you were not frightened or, or worried. No, no, not at okay. all. Because we knew we weren't doing anything wrong. Right, you know, right. And uh, you know, they could take offense to things. I suppose that you know, in terms of you know, of course, we talked to people about our faith, and that was uh, a common thing. But we didn't uh, quote proselytize. We answered questions, yeah. but we prayed for questions too. Okay, so let's talk about what happened on August 4th, 2014, with the, the abduction, as you described it. What happened that day? Well, it was, uh, yeah, it was a regular day. I was doing some work, getting ready for uh, some work we're doing in North Korea, helping an orphanage. Uh, my wife, Julia, was doing some training for our staff, just kind of upgrading service and that at the coffee house. And uh, we were invited for dinner. And uh, the dinner was to meet a, a couple whose daughter wanted to study at the University of Toronto, which we were we both graduated from. And uh, so a fairly typical, normal thing. And uh, we get to the dinner. It's in a kind of a fancier restaurant than, you know, not a place we would normally frequent. And we get there and the couple are there, but the daughter's not there. And we think, mm-hmm. well, it's a little odd. They said she had a toothache. And that's, that's kind of like saying she didn't want to come or something. Right? <laughs> and um, so we have this dinner. It's kind of fancy. As we're leaving, which is an hour or so later, um, we're going down the elevator because it's very common in China to have a private restaurant, a private room in a restaurant. It's very, very common. We go down the, in the elevator by ourselves, which is odd in itself because normally your host would see you to the door, you can pay for your cab or things like that. So we go down and we're just talking to ourselves saying, there's, there's something odd about this dinner. I don't know what it was. There's something odd. Uh, we get down to the lobby. The lobby was completely empty when we came in, one clerk at the desk. When we come out of the elevator, you know, after an hour... Uh, the dinner, it's probably a couple dozen people milling around the lobby, a couple with cameras. And Julie says, oh, it looks like a wedding. We should get out of the way. Uh, but mm-hmm. weddings and abductions are quite different, we learned. So uh, we had an abduction, and uh, I didn't see Julie for almost three months after that. Okay, and you were taken to a, you called it, I think you called it a black jail. What is that? Yes. Yeah, a black jail means it doesn't exist. It's, it's like a black site. No one knows it's there. So we were the only two in this, quote, block jail. And they're all over China. You know, they're, it's a regular thing. People just don't know about them. And uh, we were in this site for six months. Uh, the wow. government didn't know where we were. Uh, we were in separate rooms. I didn't know Julie was actually in the same building as I was in until about three months later. I had an idea she might be, but didn't know. They had 50 or 60 guards just for us, interrogated wow. every day for those six months. And... Uh, trying to say we're spies. And I'm thinking, no, no, you got it very wrong. I don't know how you got it wrong, but you got it very wrong. How, what were the conditions like in there? How were you treated? Uh, I was in one room, uh, two guards in my room 24-7, lights on 24-7. I was fed three meals a day. Basically, it seemed to be the same food the guards would eat, but then I was interrogated every day and you know, kind of had homework, you know, right out this, right out that, uh, every day. I did see the, an embassy official uh, every once in a while, every few weeks. And, but they could not talk about why I was there. So I didn't know why I was taken. And, uh, you know, the real reason, which is because a Chinese spy was arrested in Canada, much like what's going on with the Michaels now. And, uh, but yeah. they kept saying, you're a spy. You know, not the KMC didn't say that. But the Chinese officials, the interrogator said, you're a spy, you know, confess, and things like that. And I think nothing can, to confess. Yeah, no, it was very similar to the two Michaels situation because, like you mentioned, there was uh, there was a Chinese national who was arrested in Canada, and yes. again, again, this was hostage diplomacy. This was retaliation by by China. Yeah. So it's it's very eerily similar what the two Michaels are experiencing right now. So you eventually uh, faced trial, right? So it was it was a yeah. one a one day trial. Tell me what that was like. One day trial, horrible. 
I had three days notice, so I you understand I've been sitting there for months and months. This is now April 20th, 2016, so I've been sitting there for about 20 months since we were abducted. And uh, three days notice, I go to trial. It's a closed trial, which I later found out was a good thing. Um, three judges, two prosecutors, an interpreter, my lawyer, two guards, and me. And that's what it was. Um, I didn't understand much of the proceedings, kind of legal uh, Chinese language, so I didn't understand. You know, I said okay, I couldn't talk to my lawyer. Uh, I just kind of had to sit there as they read these charges and talked and talked. And I said, can I talk now? You're getting it wrong. Can I, you know, you can't talk now. And then I could talk and I couldn't say this, couldn't say that. And so it was very contrived, very controlled. And to me, everything was already decided before I even entered the courtroom. Was there any quote unquote evidence presented in this trial, this so-called trial? Well, it's, it's interesting because it looks like the same evidence that they, they convicted Michael Spavel on, taking some photos with apparently yeah. military things in the background. My photos are all from tourist sites in the city we lived. So how we got, you know, sensitive military information in there is beyond me, which would be the same for, for Michael Spavel. All right, continuing my discussion now with Kevin Garrett. Kevin is a BC man who was arrested, jailed, and tried for espionage in China. Uh, his book is Two Tears on the Window, written with his wife, Julia. Two Tears on the Window dot com is the website. OK, Kevin, uh, before the break, we were talking about your your one day so-called trial in China on espionage charges. And uh, you, you were then sentenced to a jail term, right? I was uh, right after the trial. I wasn't sentenced. My, my lawyer said to me, we should hear in two to four weeks. So knowing China, I said, well, maybe four to six. You know, and um, it wasn't until almost five months later that I actually went to my verdict hearing, much exactly what Michael Spavar went through uh, the other week. And uh, so his was about five months later as well. So I go to my verdict hearing. I had no notice for that. It just uh, came to my cell door, said, you're going to go into the court. And I almost didn't want to go because I thought, well, what's, what's going on here? I have no notice. I have no idea what's going on. Uh, anyways, I went. I got to the, the courthouse again. Uh, the only difference between the, the trial and the verdict hearing was uh, there were two representatives from the Canadian government there, two from the embassy, and my head investigator was sitting in the back. They read this eight-page verdict. They sentenced me to eight years in prison, and uh, that was it. Then, uh, What was that like? The, how, did, how did that feel? Uh, what was going well, through horrible, your mind? Yeah. Horrible feeling. It's like I, you know, someone, I met a few people, of course, in the, the detention center in the prison I was in, and uh, so I'd asked them about what is the big prison like? Once you're convicted, you go up to what they call the big prison. I said, so what's it oh. like there? Because, you know, I'm preparing myself just in case. And um, one guy, uh, he'd been in and out of prison five times, he said to me, well, if where we are now is heaven, where I'm going is hell. Oh, and that God. was his description of the big prison. So I, but the interesting thing about what happened to me, and the same with Michael Stavro was at the end of the sentence, they said deportation. Right. So the embassy people came back to me uh, right after the trial. They were allowed to talk to me, head of the consular affairs. And he said, we heard this, and we don't know what it means yet, but we're having a separate meeting tonight, separate from the judicial system, outside the court, and it's a basically a political meeting, and we'll be able to tell you more tomorrow. So this is on September 13th, September 14th morning. They come back, and they say, well, you could be deported as early as tomorrow morning. But we, what they're saying is we really don't know until we see you on the plane. So I'm thinking, yes, no, maybe, but not trusting anything because, you know, I've been through lots of disappointments before. And so 
the next morning comes along after some uh, things that happened during that day. They made me sign some papers saying I won't appeal. They made me um, pay a large fine, and um, which is all the basically the money they stole from us, anyways. Which is all designated for well, some work at the coffee shop, but also orphanage and uh, some things we were doing in uh, North Korea. Uh, confiscated most of that, and then the next morning they came and got me, put me on a plane. Uh, actually escorted me to the nearest airport and was still three hours away. Put me on the plane and uh, that was it. And I was gone. So 36 hours after my quote verdict, I was out of the country. When were we you, had hopes. Sorry, go ahead. When were you reunited with your wife and family? So the next day. So it was September 15th, 2016. So wow. almost uh, five years ago now. Was that in uh, Vancouver? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In Vancouver. Wow. So. What was that? What was that like, Kevin? Man, that must be the happiest day of your life. Well, yeah, it's been 775 <laughs> days since we were separated, oh. and uh, it was amazing because all our four kids and the grandkids were all able to come to the airport. They had very little notice. It was just the the day before, so they got there the next morning, all to Vancouver, and uh, tremendous. But you know, I was still in kind of shock. You know, even when I got on the plane, I'm thinking, well, they could turn this plane around. So I didn't even <laughs> uh, what, I wasn't even uh, uh, relax, begin to relax after two years of stress and tension until we got out of Chinese airspace. My goodness, what an incredible ordeal that you went through. And you have kind of maybe the best perspective on what the two Michaels are going through right now, Michael Spavor, Michael Kovrig, because they're going through something that's so similar to what you yeah, experienced. Exactly. What do you think about, so he's, Spavor the other day was sentenced to 11 years in jail, but as you mentioned, also tacked on, there was the potential for deportation to Canada. Do you think he's going to come home like you came home? Uh, I think he will. Unfortunately, not as, as quickly as I did. Uh, but I think it's, we know it's all tied to the Meng Wanzhou case. Whatever yeah. happens to her will happen to them. So that's very, very unfortunate. Uh, I think for me, they just wanted to get it out of the way, you know, let's be done with this type of thing. So, but I, it's very unfortunate. I've gone back to what's called hostage diplomacy. And, uh, you know, we feel for the Michaels families and the Michaels themselves. I know exactly what Michael Spavor is going through, and Michael Kovrig. I was in the same prison as Michael Spavor, so I know the wow. routines, I know everything he's going through. I know the hard beds and <laughs> everything else. Yeah, when the uh, when you were detained, Kevin, and abducted, in, uh, Canadian officials had arrested a Chinese businessman in Vancouver named Sue Bin. That's right. Who, who had been wanted for the Americans uh, Americans on alleged military espionage case. So, you know, very similar kind of hostage diplomacy, retaliation, and what happened to you and your wife. Um, exactly. as, I, yeah. as I understand it, Su Bin, basically, didn't he surrender himself to the Americans? Yeah, he, he yeah. Uh, didn't appeal. He just he went kind of quietly to the U.S. Basically, uh, my understanding is he made a deal with them. He spent four and a half years or so in prison, and now he's back in China. And I, and I know that because I know someone who's met him in China. And do you think that's why they let you go? Because he had turned himself over and you were no I, longer a bargaining chip for them? Or I, I think that's one reason. I yeah. think also um, he wasn't as big a fish to them as Meng Wanzhou. Meng Wanzhou is a very important person in China, very well known. Yes. So they're not backing down on this. With Subin... It's like he was kind of a hired spy. You know, they would never say he spied on behalf of the Chinese government, but he did. And, um, you know, he just wasn't as big, big a prize right. to, to keep hold of. 
Kevin, we just have one minute left. It, what would you say to the the two Michaels? Like you've got a better perspective than anyone on what they're going through. If you could send a message to them, what what would you say to them? I say you hold on to hope. You know, for us, it was our faith. You know, we had a, a faith and trust, and still do in Jesus. And uh, I know if they hold on to that hope, it will end. It, it never will end when we hope it will, but it will. And we've said that again and again uh, to their families, to different people. You hold on. It will end. China won't keep them forever. Even the two Michaels will get, will be set free. Even Robert Schellenberg sentenced to execution. He will be set free as well. It's just going to take some time, unfortunately. Okay, I hope you're right. I hope we see these Canadians return to Canada like you and your wife return to Canada. And I'm very grateful to you for sharing your story today. And uh, glad you're home. And thanks a lot for sharing uh, being a guest on the show today. I appreciate it a lot. You're welcome. Very glad to share and be of help. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com any way we can all right welcome back to the show and here we go now with premier john horgan's wildfire vacay the province in a state of emergency here we have 266 wildfires burning in bc right now 10 new fires in the last two days alone we had an estimated 70 homes burned down or damaged in the Okanagan on the weekend. Meanwhile, the COVID fourth wave surging in the province, over 500 new COVID cases in BC yesterday. Where is John Horgan? This is the hashtag trending on social media right now. He's on vacay. He's on vacation, spotted in Peggy's Cove, Nova Scotia, on social media. In fact, John Horgan has not made a public appearance in British Columbia since July 21st. Four weeks ago today, let's discuss now with my guest, Kevin Falcon, the former Liberal MLA. He is running to be the next leader of the BC Liberal Party, the former finance minister. I'm pleased to welcome him. Kevin, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks very much for having me, Mike. Okay, you wrote a letter to Horgan over this. What what did you say to him? Well, essentially what I said is, you know, it's time for the Premier to really be showing leadership. I mean, it's important for communities that are losing, uh, you know, livelihoods, in some cases, lives and, and homes and possessions, that they have to know that the leadership of the province has their back. And one of the most basic functions of a leader is to be present and to be uh, assuring folks that you're there, you're doing everything you can to ensure every resource is being utilized to help them fight what is, in many cases, an existential crisis. And to think, I, I look, I don't, behoove anybody for taking a family vacation everybody needs vacations but my goodness to go out of the province for weeks uh, on a vacation while half the province is on fire people are losing homes and livelihoods just strikes me as incredibly tone deaf and and not 
particularly good leadership. Okay, sometimes this stuff is a sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario, because if he was here doing news conferences or photo ops during the fire, he'd be criticized for getting in the way of the firefighting efforts. Like, what could he do? And the Premier's office says, well, he's working, he's working while he's on vacation, he's in daily contact and daily briefings with the government, making decisions, and he's still in charge. So what would he do if he was actually feet on the ground here in B.C.? What would be, how would that be better? Well, I've actually dealt with situations like this. In fact, I remember when I was Minister of Transportation and there was a, a bridge washed out at Blue River, a community uh, you know, between Kamloops and, and the Alberta border, where they were literally trapped because that, they had no other access. And, and uh, you know, I can tell you what I did. I flew up there immediately with the MLA at the time, Kevin Kruger. We met with the community. We got the, the construction teams moving uh, expeditiously to get that thing fixed. And you, you go there, you assure the community, you let them know things are happening, and you make sure every resource is, is put towards fixing the problem. And the challenge is, when the Premier's not there, I'll, I'll tell you why it's important you be there. What the Premier does is, first of all, you're up there, you spend time with the firefighters, you thank them, you let them know how much you appreciate the work you're doing. Um, you also learn a lot on the ground. There's a lot of local knowledge that he can learn from those communities. For example, in the Caribou and in the North Thompson, if he would uh, go up there and listen to folks, they've got local fire brigades, they've got lots of good First Nations uh, local knowledge that, that he might learn a thing or two that can help direct resources uh, and, and get things fixed. Right. The other thing I would say is that you continually hear from local folks up there, um, in spite of the tremendous efforts that the BC Wildfire Service and the firefighters are doing. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that because they're working their guts out in some really tough conditions. But there still is a totally inadequate lack of resources. And this is a fixable problem, Mike. It requires the Premier and his team to be on the ground up there uh, making sure that those resources are being utilized. There's private sector companies that have equipment that they can put into this fight. Okay, the government says the Premier is on a working vacation here. He's actually working while he's on holiday. He's in daily communication with his staff. He's being briefed on a daily basis. Let me play this here for you and get your thoughts. This is a Public Safety Minister, Mike Farnworth. Our Premier has been in complete solidarity with all the people of British Columbia, whether they have been uh, um, affected by wildfires or whether they are fighting the wildfires on the ground every single day. He is briefed uh, every day. Uh, I, have, I speak to him on a regular basis. The ministers who have the responsibility, which are myself, uh, in terms of emergency management BC, and uh, the, uh, the Minister of Forests in terms of responsibility for the wildfire service, are here. We have been available. Uh, press conferences on a regular basis, and the Premier is kept fully uh, apprised of the situation here. In, uh, that's been going on. Okay, Mike Farnworth there defending the Premier's vacation. Kevin Falcon, your thoughts? Well, look, here's the problem. Uh, what they're doing is, yes, he has occasional press conferences uh, in Victoria or Vancouver, uh, you know, reading out speaking points given to him by communication staffs, and I'm sure he is sending the occasional email over to John Horgan, but that is not what leadership is about. Leadership is about getting on a plane, getting up into the interior of the North Thompson, talking to folks up there, making sure that they've got all the resources they need. There are private contractors throughout this province that have aircraft and equipment, and nobody is reaching out to them. And that, to me, is a failure in leadership. Sometimes when you run for positions of leadership, whether it's a minister or or a premier of a province, uh, you have to prioritize things. When half the province is burning, entire communities like Monty Lake and Lytton have been raised to the ground, it is important for the premier to be there. And I get that vacations are important, but frankly, 
um, you have a higher responsibility when something so severe and so significant has taken place. Okay, Kevin Falcon, I, I've been doing this job long enough that sometimes it feels like that movie Groundhog Day, that things start to repeat themselves, and sometimes just the parties switch places. So let me go back here to 2015. Your party was in charge. It was a liberal government. Christy Clark was the liberal premier, trending on social media at that time, hashtag where's christy there was fight there were fires burning in the province christy clark was on vacation and she was asked where were you why weren't you here for these fires here's what she had to say in 2015 they'll get your thoughts there is a hashtag where's christy that's been trending on twitter so where have you been i was on vacation but i've been working every day okay same thing it's the same thing. She was on vacation, but she was getting briefed and she was working while the fires were burning in B.C. So that was your leader back then in 2015. How is this any different? Sure. So uh, I would argue it's probably not different, frankly. And now I wasn't there in 2015. As you know, I retired from public life in, in 2012. But nevertheless, I would say that this applies to every leader. I don't care what party they represent or what their background is. If you have and, and I for, frankly, that the firefight fighting in 2015 i don't uh, recall it being nearly as severe as it is today so i think we're talking about a whole different scale of fires and impacts but nevertheless my position is that when you have major fires that are out of control where coquahallas are being shut and coquahalla highway is being shut down monty yeah. lake is losing you know dozens of homes uh people are crying out for support and help and resources uh, that is an inappropriate time to take a vacation. So, I don't care who the leader is or what party they represent. So you're saying Christy Clark should have canceled her vacation back in 2015 in the wildfire season back then? If we were right. facing the same kind of challenges we are today, I would say yes. I, I Just off the top of my head, I don't recall the 2015 fires being quite this severe, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. Okay, okay. Let me ask you about another topic while I've got you here. You're a former transportation minister. You're very familiar with the, the problems with the Massey Tunnel. Now, at 11.30 a.m., we're expecting a big announcement here from the B.C. government. What will be done about the chronically congested Massey Tunnel? We are expecting an announcement here that the government wants to build another tunnel. So they want to put another tunnel, a new tunnel, under the Fraser River not the 10-lane bridge that the previous Liberal government wanted to build. You're familiar with this file. What do you think about this idea of another tunnel instead of a bridge? Mike, I say this, and, and I'll try and be as nonpartisan as I can, but you're talking to someone who has built and oversaw the construction of billions of dollars of bridges, including the Kicking Horse Canyon, the William Bennett Bridge, the Port Portman Bridge, the Pitt River Bridge. I can tell you that I, I have a couple of things to say about this. First of all, doing a tunnel is possibly the stupidest decision you could possibly make. It will be extraordinarily expensive. It will not add additional lanes for, for the commuter traffic that is already just jammed. Um, and it's going to have huge environmental impacts. I mean, the Fraser River estuary is a very, very sensitive area. And I'm, I'm with, you know, Chief Kim, Ken Baird from the uh, Tawasson First Nation that says, uh, you know, uh, going after that environmental and all those environmental impacts would be just devastating. And, and let's understand something here. This, to me, is about leadership and competence. In 2017, they canceled that bridge in spite of the fact that they had a bid in place from contractors with guaranteed pricing that was $900 million below the $3.5 billion budget, Mike. And had they gone ahead with that 10-lane bridge that was designed to allow rapid transit in the future that had dedicated bus lanes, 
that bridge would be opening by next summer. And instead, through these delays and the $100 million that they wrote off with the preload that was already done in the pre-construction on that 10-lane bridge, they're now moving forward to uh, apparently an eight-lane tunnel. Uh, They've been sitting on that business case for eight months, frankly, because it's probably embarrassing. They, They would have had to do a ton of work to try and make this make sense. It makes no sense. I can tell you this is a bad decision, and I can't wait to see how they try and justify the massive environmental impact and the fact that there will be no net additional lanes for the commuter traffic going in one direction either way. Okay, I'm sure they will justify it by saying this is what the local mayors have asked for. They put together some sort of a a task force and they asked the metro mayors, what kind of project do you want to see? And the mayors came back and said, forget the tunnel idea that you guys wanted to build. They said, put another bridge, uh, put another tunnel under the river instead. So what do you say to the metro mayors who have said this is the option they want? Uh, Well, the same thing I said to them when they were opposing me on building the Canada line. Uh, There are times when I just disagree. I appreciate their opinions. I think you have to listen to their opinions. But at the end of the day, you have to do what's right for the commuters. And the Canada line was right for the commuters. That's why I went ahead with it. And the bridge would be a far better solution for the commuter traffic and and the challenge of moving goods and and people across that corridor uh, than would the massive environmental impact of an eight-lane tunnel. And keep in mind, they're going to probably dedicate, based on the plans that I've seen, they're going to dedicate two of those lanes to buses. So what that effectively means, Mike, is that there will still be three lanes uh, going in the direction of rush hour traffic every day. That's exactly what we have today. So effectively, it would be almost as dumb as the the Patalo Bridge replacement they're doing where they're not adding a, even a, not even one new lane and yet they're going to spend over $2 billion to replace a bridge with no additional uh, lanes. I mean, okay. this is just crazy. Okay, I'm sure they're going to make an economic argument. Last question for you, that they will likely say that a new tunnel is going to be cheaper than the 10-lane bridge that the previous Liberal government wanted to build. So there's this tunnel technology now where they have these pre- prefabricated massive tubes that I guess they basically sink to the bottom of the river and then they connect them up uh, underwater and that this will be a more cost-effective option than a bridge. So you guys were ready to spend $3.5 billion. I take your point that you say that the bids came in under that, but I'm sure they're probably going to say it's cheaper to go with a tunnel. Uh, they're wrong. And first of all, let's remember this. We could have had that bridge opening by next summer at $900 million below the $3.5 billion budget. I would ask you to contrast that with the record of the NDP government in all of their transportation projects, which are wildly over budget, way behind schedule, and frankly not adding any additional commuter benefit. And this, I think, is the real challenge. It's a competency and leadership question. Um, I don't think they're bad people. I just think they don't know what they're doing. Thank you for coming on today. Great being on, Mike. Thanks so much.